Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. All right, so this morning we are moving into week seven of our blessed sermon series. Uh, And I I had mentioned this last week, but I'll double down on it. Uh, I am really excited about the direction of these last couple sermons. Uh, These are the the things that Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with, um, and it really gets us into some really interesting territory. Uh, I'm pretty sure I say that every week that I'm excited um, about what I'm preaching. I really love God's Word, um, so I really like preaching it. Um, If you couldn't tell. Uh, the fact that I get to do this every week is like a dream come true. Uh, a dream I never knew I had. I always thought I was going to be a professional football player. That didn't pan out, and it turns out I think I'd be kind of disappointed if I was, because uh, I really love teaching God's Word, but uh, I am really excited about where these sermons are going, uh, where Jesus takes us with these, because what we really drill down now into, we talked about this a little bit with mercy, also with what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The, the fact is those things are character traits of God, right? And so, so it really those really dive down into who God is. But as we look into these last three, today we're going to talk about meekness. Next week we're going to talk about those who mourn. And then the week after that we're going to talk about those who are poor in spirit they really dive down into something even deeper. Now, I know it's, it's kind of weird to say that there's something even deeper than the character of God, but there's something even deeper that we see, and this parallels with one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Today, we see it very, very clearly, but in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we hear of, Paul tells us about the attitude of Christ. And really, what we start to see today is that this this or this uh, meekness that we're going to talk about, it really starts to drive down into this attitude of Christ and what it means to have that. And so, if you couldn't tell, today this is what we're going to be talking about. Blessed meekness. What does it mean to have blessed meekness? Now, there's a little difference in translation. Uh, As we read today, we read from the NASB translation. That's the New American Standard Bible. Um, In the New American Standard Bible, it translates that word as gentle. Uh, But the Greek word that's used there is praise. That's the Greek word that's used there. And it can mean gentle, meek, humble, or mild. All of those things encapsulate. So we're going to talk about meekness. I like that translation, meekness. Now, we've got to be a little careful, right? We don't want to translate the Bible just because I like it a certain way. But when we look at what Jesus is telling us, and when we translate that into who Jesus was, the character of God, and Jesus' attitude that we're going to see in Philippians 2, you're going to see that meekness really is a better fit than gentle. The problem is... Our world doesn't use the word meek a lot today, does it? And so a lot of times you have this tension when you get into translations of the Bible because we use words that people are familiar with and we try to stay away from words that people are unfamiliar with, especially as we get into more modern translations of the Bible. 
And so you've got them translating gentle because there are misconceptions of what the word meek means. But when we really dig into it, y'all, meekness is at the heart of God. It's at the heart of who Jesus was. And if it's at the heart of who Jesus was, it has to be at the heart of who we are, right? So the dictionary definition of meek tells us this. Meekness is submissiveness or not being self-willed. Meekness endures injury with patience and without resentment. Starting to see why the world doesn't like the word meek? Sounds completely contrary to everything that we're taught in the world, isn't it? So let's learn from what it means. Let's learn what it means to have this blessed meekness. And we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at what meekness means to the world. Why does the world, why are they, we so against being meek in the world today? Then we're going to look at what being meek has to mean if we're going to be disciples of Jesus. And then finally, we'll look at the blessing that Jesus gives us that comes when we embrace this attitude of being meek. Ready? All right, first up, meekness to the world. The reason that we don't hear this word used much anymore is because, let's be real, the world does not like being meek, right? You in your flesh, me in my flesh, I do not like being meek. Revisit the definition. Submissive. That's warning flag number one, right? Because anybody who hears the word submissive, immediately the bells start going off. Ringy, dingy, 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 right? Whoa, 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 whoa. What are we talking, pastor? Are we going old school? Like, wives, submit to your husbands as is unto the Lord, right? Submit to me, woman, and make me a sandwich, right? That's what we, that, that's what we think when we think submissive, right? Go be my submissive wife. Don't question a single thing that I say or do and get in the kitchen and make me a sandwich, that's what submission makes us think. And so in our modern culture, and of course men never submit, right? Come on, guys. When's the last time you submitted? Yet, what's the Bible tell us to do? Right? Wives, submit to your husbands, but husbands, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to live like Jesus, right? You're supposed to love like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Submitted to the perfect will of the Father, right? It's not a guy-girl thing, y'all. This isn't a gender thing. Everyone is called to submit. Everyone is called to embrace meekness. But the world doesn't like it. Submissive, not self-willed. What's the world teach you today? Right? Self-care, self-love, self, 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 self. It all centers around me. Right? I have my truth. I have my everything. It's me, me, me. The world hates meekness. And then here's a big one. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Anything in there sound like what the world is currently telling you to do. Like what the world is currently saying, oh yeah, go act this way. Nothing, nothing about meekness fits in this world. And y'all, this is the world's objection to Christianity. And unfortunately, the church has embraced this rejection and has said, well, you don't really have to do that. 
right? Christian teaching says, well, you don't really have to do that. Well, pastor, that's just going to make me a doormat for people. That I'm just, you're just laying me out there, and people are going to wipe their dirty feet all over me, and I, that, that's, that's telling me that I have to be a doormat. Y'all, are we rejecting the teaching because Jesus didn't teach it, or are we rejecting the teaching because we don't like it? Because when I read the gospel, at the core of the gospel is a God who gave his life, knowing that Jeremy Allen Metzger would trash his grace with cheap grace. That I would sin, that I would, oh, well, Jesus is going to forgive it, I'm just going to go out and sin, and he gave his life anyway. Jesus knew that, Jer I'm not even, forget, I'm not putting this on any of you, I'm putting it on me that Jeremy would treat him like a doormat, would treat his grace like a doormat, and wipe my dirty, muddy feet all over the Son of God. And Jesus paid the price anyway. Why do we reject meekness? The fact is, the gospel teaches that, y'all, it is a very real possibility probably even more so, it is a very real reality that if you live in the same meekness that Jesus Christ did, the world will wipe their dirty feet all over you. You will be rejected. You will be cursed and spit on and made fun of and expected, not by the world, the world expects you to fight back. God expects you to take it, to absorb that hurt and to give grace anyway. Anybody ever had to do that? That's hard, isn't it? That's not an easy thing to do. But that's God's expectation, right? In fact, I would say it's impossible to do in your strength, right? We've got to rely on God living inside us through the Spirit to accomplish any of this stuff. There's a passage of Scripture. I think this passage of Scripture would be much more unpopular today if we actually understood what was even going on in it. I've actually taught on this before. Some of you will remember it. Others of you, this passage comes from Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, uh, John the Baptist, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he, he wants to know, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one of God, or should we look for someone else? And so John's disciples come and they ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus gives them a very unsatisfying answer to all of us because he doesn't answer them straight away, right? He says, go back to John the Baptist and report the things that you see. He doesn't give him a yes or no, right? Wouldn't it be great if he just gave us a yes or no? But he doesn't. He says, go report the things that you see. And then he makes a list and says, look at all those things. And all of the things that Jesus lists are things that the Messiah had to fulfill to be the Messiah. And so he says, John, you got to make your mind up for yourself. But look at what I've done. Don't look at what I say about myself. Don't look at what others say about me. Look at what I've done for you. And so his disciples go, and when they go, Jesus tells his disciples about John the Baptist. He tells them, this is the one about whom it was prophesied, who would come saying, make, way, make straight the way of the Lord. This is the one who is to come before me to prepare the world for my coming. And then he says this, and it goes over most of our heads every single time. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been treated violently, and violent men take it by force. 
what a weird passage, right? At face value, this makes absolutely zero sense, right? It actually contradicts itself, doesn't it? The kingdom of heaven has been treated violently, and violent men take it by force? What? Right? But the reason it gets so messy, and guys, this is normally, I would encourage you to do this. When you read a Bible verse, and it's sloppy, when you read it, and it's like, what in the world is going on? This doesn't make any sense. Don't just fly by it, right? That's our tendency, is we tend to just kind of like, push it to the side, and then move on. There's a reason that these things are goofy, and a lot of times it comes down to the translation. That's something that I like to do. Now, I, I will say, I have resources in my disposal to do this. Uh, I have a computer program that I click on a button and it tells me what the Greek words mean, which is really great. I'm not advocating you go buy that. But do some research on some of these things, right? Dig into them because you can find, a Google search will find results on what the Greek words mean here. But what we find in this passage is that in the Greek, this word that's used right here that gets translated treated violently, it's actually a verb. The verb is, is one verb. There is no treated in there. The verb is violence, right? And we don't really use violence as a verb today. So if you read this literally, it would literally be translated that the kingdom of heaven is violencing. See how that doesn't make much sense? See how the English translators have to do something here because they can't really put, the kingdom of heaven is violencing. That just doesn't make any sense. And then that verb, the tense in the verb that is used there is an action that is done to yourself. So it's not just violencing, it's violencing inward. It's violence that you're taking upon yourself. So you see why it gets translated as treated violently, right? Because the violence is happening to the subject. There's a parallel passage, we won't go into it today, but parallel passage in Luke where the, that verb violencing is actually in, in this weird middle tense, which means that the, the verb is actually happening two ways. It's happening, it's both an outward violencing that you do, but it's also an inward violencing that happens to you. And so you can see, like, what do we do with this, right? What happens here? But guys, this is so good when we actually understand what's going on here. Because we've got to be so careful, church, and I, I, this, is, this is an area, I, I know I rag on the church a lot. I talk a lot about the church in the United States, and I don't throw the church in the United States under the bus because I hate the church. I throw the church in the United States under the bus because, like, guys, we've got to do this better. And the only way we can do this better is if we really understand what God's talking about in his word. But this principle of violencing is something that I see abused in the church in the United States way too often today, right? We're going to have a lot of Christians, and I'm sorry, Christian, if you voted yes on issue one, but, but there are a lot of Christians who are not going to be real happy with that. And I'm not saying you should be happy with it. I'm not advocating for that at all. But I am saying the tendency is we violence the wrong way. We're unhappy with an election result. And so we look at this verse and we say, well, look, violent men take it by force. Storm the Capitol. Violent men take it by force. We're bringing the fight to them. Violent men take it by force, so we've got to take this by force and make the kingdom of heaven come down and shout and scream and yell just as loud as the enemy. But that's because we misunderstand what violencing in God's kingdom really means. This is going to blow your minds. I know you've never heard this before. But there's two ways to violence. 
God's way and man's way, right? Ladies and gentlemen, if the church is screaming and sounds exactly like the world, whose way are we violencing? It's not God's way. Because the reality is this verb tense that Jesus uses of violencing is a violence that's done to yourself, which means how does the kingdom of heaven violence? The kingdom of heaven violences in meekness. The kingdom of heaven violences by absorbing that hurt, by absorbing those strikes, by taking it, and without resentment, still loving those who would strike us. What did Jesus do on the cross, y'all? Right? He didn't strike everybody with lightning. He wasn't like Thor from the Avengers and come down off the cross and swing his mighty hammer, give those guys what they deserve, right? So why do we fight that way? I think we need to chill on the Marvel movies and maybe reassess how we're fighting. Because Jesus fought by absorbing our blows. Take him off the cross, y'all. Forget about the cross, not the physical cross. You put him on your cross. What did Jesus do with your sin? Did he strike back at you for your sin against him? He didn't, did he? He absorbed it and took it upon himself and without resentment brought you into the kingdom of heaven. Church, how do we violence? God's way or man's way? We must learn to violence God's way. We cannot join man's good fight. Fight the good fight. Pick up your sword and fight. It's not your sword. And we can tell by this, y'all, that our aim is completely off because we fight the wrong things. We fight for the wrong things. The reality is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. This is how God's violent men take it by force. This is how we are to take God's kingdom by force. By bringing that violence upon ourselves. By loving others the way that Jesus loved. This is how we fight. Because, ultimately, this is how Jesus fought. Right? If you are going to be a disciple of Christ... You cannot be a disciple of Jesus your way. We know this. This isn't how it worked back then. It's not how it works now. If you were a disciple of any rabbi, any Jewish rabbi, it meant I'm going to do it my rabbi's way. If this was how your rabbi prayed for healing over someone, guess how you prayed? The same way your rabbi did. If this is how your rabbi prayed before a meal, guess how you prayed? The same way your rabbi did. We've got a billion Christians in the world today who say they're disciples of Jesus, but they absolutely refuse to live life Jesus' way. Church, we cannot be one of those. We've got to do better because if the world continues to look at us, you know, there's this, this saying, it gets, it gets attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, but I, I actually, upon further digging, I don't think he actually said it. But one of the things, you know, supposedly that they said to him is, you know, his objection to Christianity. And he, he said, well, it's not your Jesus that I dislike, it's your Christians. 
right? And so who knows who actually said it. The point is still valid, right? I don't care who said it. They made a really good point. Because we've got a bunch of Christians running around doing absolutely nothing that Jesus said or did. Doing things the exact opposite way of what Jesus said to do. And, and this is where, guys, we have to help the church change. You have to help your friends change. You know, your Christian brothers and sisters, people who say they're Christ. I am convinced more and more what we need more than anything is not more outreach. We don't need, to, uh, we do need to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't. You, we can't like pick and choose. It's part of the gospel cause is that we go out. But more than anything, than just like, oh, let's, as a church, let's do more outreach events. More than that, we need to get Christians to start living like they're actual disciples of Jesus. Because everywhere throughout the, the gospel, the book of Acts, all of it, everywhere, when Christians live like Jesus, like actual disciples of Jesus, the world always notices. And there are always those who will spit and curse and call you down and throw you in jail and nail you to crosses upside down. There are always those who do that. But there are even more who take notice and say, I want that. The reality today, Gospel House, is that we are not showing the world anything that they want because we're not actually living like Jesus. That does not mean that we take it upon ourselves and with our business practices, we make Christianity look cooler, right? Nobody's wearing jean jackets today, right? Dang it, Stephanie is. I had one jean jacket, sorry. No, but it's, it's not our job to make Christianity cooler, right? Tattoo up my sleeves and get nose rings and all the things, like look at me, I'm relatable and cool, right? That's not your job. And the world sees right through all that garbage, y'all. You go live like Jesus, right? Whatever that looks like, sweater vests and thick glasses and bow ties, who cares, right? I, I dress, dress shirt and tie and slacks for me. If that's what it looks like, then that's what it looks like. But go live like Jesus because that's what the world needs. This meekness is at the core of being a disciple of Christ because it was at the core of who Jesus was. Look at what Philippians 2 tells us, starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. I absolutely love this passage. I had my kids memorize this passage. I memorized this passage. Actually, I think our first sermon series that we did as the Gospel House was on this passage of Scripture, breaking this down and looking at what is the attitude of Christ. Because, y'all, attitude is so important. Anyone? Can I get an amen? Right? Attitude is so important. And you all know this. We all know this. Your attitude dictates your thoughts. Your attitude dictates your actions. It dictates the lens through which you see the entire world. If I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, it is amazing how many terrible things happen to me that day, isn't it? 
But if I wake up and I thank God, say, all right, Lord, another day, this is the day you have made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. It is amazing how many great things happen, right? And it's all about your attitude. Are you going to choose to look at the good or are you going to choose to look at the bad? We've all been there, right? When you wake up cranky and just everything's awful. Some of us just have that sunny disposition all the time. Right? Glass empty kind of guy here. And that's just how you see the world. But it's amazing when you change your attitude. If you say, no, today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to count my blessings. And I'm going to look at the ways that I am blessed instead of the way, things that are going wrong, right? If you need pointers on that, I would suggest you talk to Karen Dodderman. She's probably the po most positive human being that I know. So go talk to Karen. She'll, she'll help you out. Sorry, Karen, had to throw you under the bus there. That's a good bus to get run over by. But here's the thing. Careful. Be very, very careful. Because Christians have hijacked this really weird thing in this. The power of positive thinking. Right? We've hijacked it, y'all. We've made it a Christian teaching. Yeah, it's in the Bible. It's, uh, I think it's Mark 46, 18. It doesn't exist, y'all. There is no such thing. And in fact, if you go through the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does God say to have positive thoughts. Have a positive attitude, right? You might say have positive thoughts. Not a positive attitude. You are not taught to have a positive attitude. What are we taught? To have the attitude of Christ. And what is the attitude of Christ? Meekness. At its core, it is meekness. When Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ existed as God. Jesus Christ is God. And yet, he did not consider equality with God something that he was aiming for. Right? If you're looking at the totem pole, the hierarchy in heaven, right? God's the CEO. Jesus never said, well, if I just pay my dues and if I just do the right things, I'm going to get to CEO someday. I might even be better than my dad. Never. Not once. You guys know what got Satan kicked out of heaven? Right? Satan said the exact opposite. He said, I can do what this guy does. I can do this and I'm going to do better than that. I can achieve this position and more. And he got the swift boot out of heaven. But now, what's the problem with us? What's Satan try to get us to do with every fiber of his being? To aim for that position where we think we're better than God. You all look at the root of every single thing going on today, right? Every single thing. It's all rooted in that. Well, I know how I'm made better than God. You know, I was born this way, but I know better. I'm actually this way. Right? Every single thing is rooted in this lie that started with Satan. But Jesus would have none of it. Jesus wasn't playing that game, which is ironic because Jesus could have played that game. Right? Jesus was equal in every way. But he didn't play that game. He wasn't interested in the power or the position or the prestige. And he gave it all up. Y'all, can I tell you something? It is so incredibly freeing when you give up this chase after power and position and prestige. 
when you stop worrying about what other people think of you, what you think of yourself, right? And y'all, the gospel is the only way that we can successfully do that. It's the only way. Because the gospel says the only opinion in this universe that matters is God's opinion of me. And even though I am complete and utter garbage, even though I have been destroyed by sin, Jesus gave his life to make me like him. And he said I am worth it. When that's pronounced over you, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. And for the first time in your life, you can finally let go of chasing that people-pleasing even that, that self-pleasing, right, of, of, of trying to perform up to a standard that meets your expectations. God says you are enough. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It doesn't matter what you think of you. God says you are enough. If you were the only human being in the world, he would have still given his life for you. That's how much he cares for you. We have to embrace that. And our struggle in embracing that is actually ourself, isn't it? That's the biggest enemy. We sabotage that at every turn, around every corner, because the self gets in the way and the self wants to be puffed up, right? The self is so concerned about what other people are saying about me, about what I think of myself, about all of those things. But it is absolutely incredible what can happen when we stop worrying about ourselves. When we let go of that. Has anybody ever been there? I will be, I'll be the first to admit. I have seasons of this, right? I think as human beings, that's kind of what happens. We kind of, you know, ebb and flow into this. But, but there are seasons where I want everybody to know I am a great pastor, Right? I want to look at our YouTube numbers and I want to look at our Facebook numbers and I want to you know, look at all these things and say, look, how many people are watching our sermons and people think I'm a great preacher and people think, right? Please don't pretend I'm the only one, right? We all have these moments where I want to be edified. I want to be built up. I want people to know that I am great and that what I am doing is great. And you kill yourself chasing after that. You absolutely destroy yourself chasing after that. But then there are moments when you have these breaths of fresh air where the gospel comes in and the Holy Spirit reminds you who you are. And you think, thank you, God, that I don't have to chase that. Because it doesn't matter how many people are in this building. It doesn't matter how many people watch online. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. What matters is that God gave me a word and I was obedient to deliver it. I stepped out in obedience to him, and that's the only thing that matters. I did what he said. He says I'm enough. And those are the greatest feelings in the world. And yet, this life has a way of continuing to pull us back, right? So we've got to anchor, and we've got to stay anchored in the fact that God says that we are not enough. But look at these qualities that this lists of Jesus, this attitude of Jesus. Humility, selflessness, becoming a servant, being obedient to the point of death. Sounds an awful, like that, uh, an awful lot like that definition of meekness, doesn't it? 
It sounds an awful lot like violencing for the kingdom of God, doesn't it? We connecting the dots here? You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you are unwilling to be meek. If you are unwilling to get rid of self and to completely submit and surrender to him. But make no mistake, a lot of times in our culture, meekness is taught as weakness. Meekness is not weakness, y'all. And you know this if you've ever actually had to exercise meekness in your life. I heard this preached once, and I will absolutely never forget it. But there's this sermon, I don't even remember who preached it anymore. But he was talking about the temptations of Jesus. When Jesus goes out to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat any food or drink any water. He's supernaturally sustained by the Holy Spirit out in the desert as he's going through this. And at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights, the fast is over, it's all done, Satan shows up in the desert and tempts him with three temptations. So he goes through, but the one super interesting thing that this pastor brought up is the first temptation. Jesus is hungry. The fast is over, right? What's everybody do when the fast is over? You run to the buffet, all you can eat, right? And Satan says, Jesus, the fast is over. Turn this stone to bread and eat. And when you step back and look, where's the sin in that, right? The fast is over. Jesus is under no obligation to continue fasting. And yet he tells the devil no. But here's the interesting thing that this pastor brought up. Jesus never once in his life used his supernatural power to serve himself. Right? I've heard some people prophesy, not prophesy, think about some, put out there, you know, if Jesus had a cold, you know, he would heal himself of that cold. I don't think he would, y'all, because not once did Jesus ever use his supernatural power for himself. And what Satan was getting at with this turn this rock to bread and eat it was do this and contradict your very nature. By very na- your very nature, Jesus, you are selfless. Break it. Break that selflessness and do what you want. And Jesus said, absolutely not. I won't have any of it. And then I, after I heard that, I was like, all right. Come on, there's got to be one time in Scripture where Jesus did something. So I went back and I read it, all the Gospels. I went through and read them. I challenge you, you can do the same. Not one time, y'all, not one time does Jesus ever do anything to serve his own interest. Never does he do anything for himself. It is always for others. Every miracle, every healing, every everything is always for others, completely and 100% selfless. Revisit the definition of meek. Submissive and not self-willed. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Jesus to a T, y'all. That is who he was at his core. Has anybody ever had to do this? If you have children, you have definitely had to do this. I don't know if you realize it or not. There always comes a moment with children when you have kids where you refuse to let your daughter have a cupcake. It's not necessarily, this is a proverbial cupcake. It's not metaphysical, you know. But, and she looks up at you and she says, I hate you. 
right? You know, parents, you know this is true, right? There's always a moment you say no to something, and you get, I hate you. Sometimes it's brass right to your face. Sometimes it's muttered under their breath as they're scurrying away. But regardless, if you're not there yet, you will be. But you get this, and at that moment, you have a choice, right? Pastor Jeremy has about 20 years of pre-Jesus, and in that pre-Jesus life, I learned a lot of words, y'all. And I guarantee you there are some people I can go toe-to-toe with and I can make you feel about that big. So do you do that to your kid who just said that they hate you? Or do you absorb that hurt and love them anyway? You guys see meekness? It is not lack of strength, right? If anything, it is even more strength to have that kind of self-control when you've got all the ammo in the world to absolutely destroy the other person and all it takes is one little dip on that low road and you can raise them to the ground. But you choose to absorb the pain and to forgive them, to love them anyway. Y'all, how does Jesus walk in complete and total meekness, right? And when we walk in meekness, we walk in the blessing of God. Look at what Jesus gets for walking in meekness. This is how Philippians 2 finishes. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is worthy of all praise because not once, even now, y'all, even at the right hand of the Father, not once did Jesus ever seek that glory on his own. Never once did Jesus desire that glory, but it was freely given to him. Too many times, we as Christians, we want a share of God's glory, right? I want to get to heaven so that I can get the stuff. God, give me the stuff. Some of us are even more short-sighted than that, right? Forget heaven, God. Give me the stuff here on this earth. I don't want heaven. Give me my blessings now, right? We're like the prodigal son. God, give me my inheritance now. And so we call it down, and in faith, we stand on the promises and all the things. It's shaky, y'all. But God will never share his glory with those who seek that glory for themselves. The only way to God's glory is to seek him and him alone. Y'all, what has this entire sermon series been about? You see it? Every single sermon, we end every single one the same way, right? We've got to stop chasing the wrong things. We've got to get our aim right. And the only way to do it is to seek God himself. And when we, like Jesus, get our aim right, when we walk in and embrace meekness, in obedience and surrender, when we violence God's way, the kingdom way, then and only then will we find the meek blessing. And I have to be honest here. I have never liked this beatitude. Miss Janet asked me when she came in this morning, this is the question that was on her heart. 
because she knew we were coming to this. And it's the reason I've never liked this blessing. Because I don't like the blessing, right? And listen, y'all, here's the thing. That's a me problem, right? Anytime I look through scripture and I say, God, I don't like that blessing. That's not a God problem. That's a me problem. Because if God calls something blessed, I need to embrace it, right? Because God's not wrong. So if God says it's a blessing and I don't like it, then I need to dig in and find out, number one, why I don't like it, and number two, why it's a blessing, right? But look at this promise. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. And if you are being really honest with yourself, look around. Is there anyone in here who wants this hot mess? Right? The world is a mess. I don't want this. Do you want it? It's like, you know, the, the, you have the grandparent who's got like the creepy life-size dolls. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen those things? They're creepy. If you have them, I apologize. They're weird to me. So they, they scare me a little bit. Um, but, and then, you know, so the, the grandma's getting ready to pass away and she's got to give these dolls away. I don't want them, right? But you feel bad throwing them away because they're your grandma's. You can't just pitch them or sell them off. And so you end up shoving them up in the attic, and then the next person who buys your house has all these creepy dolls up in the attic. Cancel the sale. We're not moving in here. Forget this, right? But that's how I feel with this promise. Like, God, this, this earth is, is like a bunch of creepy life-size dolls. I don't want it. It's a mess. No, thank you, Lord. I will go to heaven. You can leave all the lukewarm Christians here. They barely want heaven anyway. Right? <laughs> That's usually how it goes. And then there's another element to it that's kind of like, wait a minute, God. I thought I was supposed to not long for the things of this earth. Hasn't this whole sermon series been about not focusing on the things of this earth and focusing on you and what's next? Right? And so there's this tension. So what do we do with it? Ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist and just move on to the next chapter. That's typically what we do, right? But we've got to dig into it. This would be a crummy sermon series if that was what we did. We've got to dig into it. Because that is what we miss. That's what I have missed. And I will repent for this, y'all. Just give me time. God's kingdom is so vast. So much bigger than what we give it credit for. We as humans get so short-sighted and, and so laser-focused on just one thing. And so we, when we think of his kingdom, we think heaven and mansions and pearly gates and stones or streets made of gold and all the things, right? We get a dance in clouds and all those things that heaven is, but it isn't. And so that's what we think. But Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is so much more than that. We know this because he tells us as much in the Lord's Prayer. He tells us right here in the Beatitudes. He tells us before the Beatitudes when he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are to pray that God's will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Some will say that that is calling God's kingdom down onto this earth, right? Now, I have to pause because there's some really shady theology in some of that teaching, right? There's this whole kingdom now movement and all this stuff. 
you got to be careful, y'all. The reality is there is truth to it. But we have a problem because we, as human beings, we tend to want to major on one side or the other, and we are horrible at finding middle ground. Because the reality is there are passages in the gospel where Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is on earth now. That that's what we're supposed to do. You can look them up if you would like. I would suggest you jot these down if you care to do your research and prove me wrong, which you will not because I did my research. Luke 17 and Matthew 12. Those are two different passages that Jesus gives us that talks about the kingdom of heaven being here now. That we as disciples of Christ are supposed to pray the kingdom of heaven here now. But the other reality is the kingdom of heaven is not fully here yet. We see that in Luke 19, if you want to check that out. We also see it in reality, right? Because for as much as you get the excuses and everything, well, you just didn't have enough faith. That's why your prayer wasn't answered. Guys, baloney. Absolute baloney. And you have my permission. If somebody ever tells you that, you can sock them in the nose. I'm just kidding. You don't have my permission. But guy, if you are a Christian and you say that to people, please stop. That, that's the most awful thing you could ever say to another human being. Horrible. And some of you have been in the unfortunate position where you've been told that. And I apologize on behalf of every Christian that has ever called themselves a Christian and said that to you. Because it's hogwash. It's absolute baloney. The reality is God chooses to heal some people temporarily on this earth now. You guys know not everyone lives forever. Were you aware of that? Everyone dies. No one is healed perfectly to where they never die. Everyone dies. Right? So sometimes God chooses to heal people temporarily on this earth now. And the kingdom now people say, yeah, that's how it is, kingdom now. But then eventually those people are healed completely and perfectly when they die, right? The kingdom of heaven is in our midst. And when we walk in the will of God, there are moments that we get glimpses into that and we can bring that kingdom down and we can pray for healing and restoration and it happens. But there are other times when it's still messed up, y'all. And the kingdom of heaven is not fully realized yet. So that exists, and it's real, and it's weird, and there's a tension in it. But the reality is, those moments when we can pray for healing are very soon coming to a point where that will be the only reality that we know. And it will be Jesus who comes and restores everything and makes it right, and there will be no more pain, and no more suffering, and no more tears. Jesus will wipe it all away in an instant, and this world will be made right. The fact that Jesus resurrected with a physical body shows us that God is very much interested in restoring his physical creation. There have been a ton of denominational splits over this issue, whether God wipes out the entire earth and starts all over. I'm sure if you polled people in this room, you'd get, how many people are there? Whatever, you'd get that many different answers, right? Everybody's got their own philosophy. But the fact that Jesus Christ rose with a physical body, has a physical body, very much speaks to me that God is very interested in restoring this world, his physical creation to what it was supposed to be. The reality is, whether you believe that or not, Revelation tells us plainly 
that there is coming a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. 1,000 years of Jesus on this earth where everything will be put right. Animals will not fight each other. Babies will play next to poisonous snake dens and not get bitten. We are told that point blank in Scripture, y'all. So regardless of whether that just lasts the thousand years and then everything burns up and fades away and we get a new heaven and new earth and all the things, it doesn't matter. There is a point when Jesus is going to put all of this right. Everything. And will restore his creation. And when that happens, y'all, this earth will be worth inheriting. And we don't have to wait for that to make it worth it. This is where I got short-sighted, y'all. I repent. My lovely wife is here, Jana. I am sorry. I will look at you in heaven. I'm being dead serious, y'all. The Holy Spirit corrected me of this this week. I got rebuked by the Holy Spirit on this exact issue. I did, because here's the thing that I miss, y'all, and I should know better than this. I should know better because I teach this. I taught some of you this in your marriage stuff, Right? When I see my wife on this earth, I don't love Jana because she's gorgeous. She is gorgeous, but that's not it. I love Jana because of the Jesus I see in her. So when I say in heaven, I'm going to be so focused because I'm at the feet of Jesus, guess where Jesus is? He's in my wife, right? When Jesus is in his rightful place, he takes center stage in everything, when this earth is made right, Jesus Christ will take center stage in everything. Y'all, when you get to heaven, you will love your spouse, you will love your friends and your kids, not because they're your friends and your spouse and your kids, but because of the Jesus you see in them. But guess what you're supposed to do now? Don't love them any less than that. Love them now because of the Jesus you see in them. That's how we bring the kingdom of heaven down now. God has given us these possessions on this earth, and y'all, most of the stuff, it's good stuff. Marriage is a good thing given to us by God. Friendships are a good thing given to us by God. Work, as much as you may hate it, is a good thing given to us by God. But we have to redeem it which means we do not make them ultimate things. We put God in the center of all of these things. And y'all listen, this doesn't mean we make it Christian, right? Well, my family only listens to Christian music. Just put Jesus in the center of it because there's just as much Christian music made with poor motives as there is secular music made with poor motives, unfortunately, right? Put Jesus in the center of it and redeem it now. And how do we do that? And the answer, y'all, is in meekness. Submission to the will of God. I do not love my wife for selfish reasons. And I have, y'all, right? We've all been there. We've loved our spouse, we've loved our children, we've loved our friends for selfish reasons. Because this group of friends gives me social status. Because this group of friends make me feel good about myself. Embrace meekness. Get rid of the self. And love the Jesus in everyone and everything you know. And when you do that, y'all, you will inherit 
the things of this earth. Because God sees for the first time, Jeremy can handle it. Because he's gotten his self out of the way. You know what happens? You know, getting the self out of the way is accomplished by one prayer, one really easy prayer. Not my will. You know what happens when you pray, not my will, and you get yourself completely out of the way? There is nothing left but God's will. When you pray, not my will, and get yourself out of the way, all that's left is Jesus' way. And you embrace that. And when you do, you show God, Jeremy's not in it for the stuff anymore. Jeremy's not in it for the healing. He's not in it for the world. He's not in it for the riches or the blessing. Jeremy's finally figured it out. He's in it for me. And at that moment, you become ready to inherit the earth. Y'all know this. Some of you know this. One of my favorite characters and stories in the Bible is the book of Job, the character of Job. But I have never liked the ending of the book of Job because I have seen far too many, many people twist it to say something that it doesn't. So if you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, Job literally has everything taken from him. All of his children die. All of his possessions are stolen. His own wife leaves him, tells him to curse God and die because she doesn't want to be around him anymore. He's afflicted with this awful, these painful sores all over his body. He's just a shell of a man. And so the entire book of Job is just Job going back and forth with his friends for 39 chapters, I think. I can't remember exactly how long it is, but back and forth about how if, oh, if if I could just talk to God, I'd plead my case before him. And his friend saying, you're a sinner, Job. Repent of your sins and you'll be all better. And Job's saying, I'm not a sinner. I just need to talk to God. Right, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then you get to the end. And this is what I love in the book of Job. And God shows up, right? God shows up and he answers Job. But the thing that I don't like about the book of Job is after all of this, God gives Job twice as much back as what he had before. And I have heard so many people teach, if you just hold on, if you just suffer for a little bit, you're going to get double back everything the enemy's taken from you. God's going to restore all your fortunes and bring it all back. Where is your aim when that's the message? On the stuff, right? Where is the aim supposed to be? On God. Y'all, here is the moral of Job. Job saw God and was satisfied. Remember what we talked about last week? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Job saw God and was satisfied. He didn't need anything else because he saw God. And at that moment, Job became worthy to inherit the things of the earth because he didn't need them anymore. We as human beings have a tendency to cling to the things of this earth, don't we? The riches of this earth. Well, doggone it, God, I deserve this. But when we learn to hold them loosely, you've got to be so careful because the, the temptation here is, okay, God, I'm going to hold stuff loosely. I'm holding stuff loosely. Okay, come on now. Give it to me back. Give it back. Right? That's, that's, that's the, the struggle that we've got to wrestle with. 
because we can't hold things loosely just so he gives it. God knows your heart, right? If he's not giving it back, it's because you're not ready to have it back, and you may never be ready to have it back. So stop asking for it back, right? We talked last week about how sometimes you got to lay something down and wait for God to say, okay, pick it up again before you're supposed to pick it up. And until he says, leave it, because it's a distraction and you don't need it. But Job learns meekness. He learns to suffer well for God and not to hold any resentment toward God. And because he does, because he embraces this life of meekness, he inherits the earth. Job saw God and was able to say that his goal was God himself at any cost and by any road. Jesus Christ was the epitome of meekness. Nobody did it better, y'all. He endured the cross, and not only did he, does he hold it against us, that it was our sin that put him there, but instead he embraces us and grants us his righteousness that he earned on that cross. Through his suffering, Jesus' goal has always been God himself. And he paid the ultimate price to show us that. Now it's our turn. Will we become meek and show God that our goal is God himself? At any cost, dear Lord, and by any road. If we will, we will find that he is more than worth it. And we will see him in everything as we inherit this earth. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.